In the dark hours, in the antique books, in the letters long lost and forgotten, there are tales of horror to frighten and disturb. Come, join us as we delve deep into the darkness. Into the sleepless hours when you dare not close your eyes. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Welcome, sleepless listeners. I'm your host, David Cummings. I'd like to thank everyone for the celebratory messages about our 10th anniversary. We had a blast putting together all the content for the big event. But we can't rest on our laurels. We're still deep into Season 16, and we have another 10-plus years to get started. So let's get back into the mysterious world of the storage locker, the thickening plot bookstore, and our enigmatic benefactor. Now, the hunt for the thickening plot hasn't yielded much fruit yet, I'm sorry to say. Unfortunately, it seems like when it moved, the bookstore also changed its name. So I'm looking for a needle in a haystack. Graham Rowett has been following up on some leads too, and other members of the team are now offering to help as well. But I do have one promising, yet unsettling lead. I received a package in the mail to where I am now in New Jersey. An address absolutely nobody has. It was a collection of printouts along with a set of map coordinates. They point to a location in New Jersey. There wasn't much in the way of a note other than this. Looks like you need some help, but first you should listen to Olivia's warning. Much love, Alexander Hay. P.S. I'm not your benefactor. So things are getting creepier. And what was Olivia's warning? She received an email from an anonymous source with a news article about vandalism and a break-in at a certain storage compound. The one where our unit is, of course. And along with the link, the sender had written, David should go back first. Signed, A.H. So it looks like I'm going to have to take a trip back to that storage unit, then return here again. If I wasn't so freaked out by the events, I'd be mad. But I can't explain why. I feel like there's a malevolence in these new events. I feel like... I I don't know. I feel like everything's about to change. But for now, I guess I'll consent to presenting these latest printouts I was sent, with the help of David Alt. He has a vague memory of the events from the printouts and remembers the time when the UK gaming scene was fascinated by a game called Bleak Stars. For a brief time between 1984 and 1985, Micromania, and I quote, for your games and your computer, was the best-selling magazine of its kind in the UK. Its blend of brash humor, 
coverage of all the 8-bit micro-platforms, and focus on games made it a big hit in the nascent computing scene of the mid-80s. This came to an abrupt end when its offices and staff were consumed by a huge fire in November 1985. Rumors would soon abound with arson, black magic rites, and links to the security services all cited as possible causes. Despite none of these being substantiated, one fact remains. In its last months, the magazine faced a great deal of criticism over its in-depth coverage of The Bleak Stars, or just Bleak Stars, a controversial game whose content even led to alarmist reports in the mainstream press and questions in Parliament. While this drew in a large number of readers and a spike in sales, the game's often lurid and horrific themes led to some asking why it was getting more attention than other, less controversial games. Others spoke out in defense of both the game and magazine, arguing that this was a free speech issue. But there were also a large number of letters from readers who had been deeply affected and even disturbed by the game. This mailbag article from the October 1985 issue is a case in point. Micromail, our pick of the post. Welcome to this month's mailbag. We've got arguments about whether the Commodore or Spectrum is best, whether Gavin's mum loves the Amstrad CPC. You're fired, Ed. Whether it was right to pirate games during the miners' strike, and whether Joffa Smith is the messiah or just a naughty boy. Surely's on mistake, Ed. But first, we received a ton of letters about The Bleak Stars, the controversial text adventure from Wormwood Games. The national press has been abuzz with stories about its crazy plot, gore, twisted images, and rumors that it drives players around the bend. <laughs> and lots of swearing. This month, we delve deep into the maddest letters sent in so far. Hold on, readers, it gets C-R-A-Z-Y. <laughs> So, <clears throat> Dear Micromania, I have to say Bleak Stars is my game of the year. I love how the story unfolds and how the puzzles test both your mind and your courage. The best part is where you cut off your censored, Ed, and then gouge out your own eyes. Until I played the game, I never realized I've always wanted to do this. Since then, I've started finding people who want to degrade me and worse. It's the closest I can get to feeling how I did when I first played Bleak Stars, when I realized I was nothing and I wanted to be even less, and less, and less. S. Hattrick, Edinburgh. Micromania says, Talk about getting caught up in a game, S. Hattrick. We're all in favor of human degradation, having worked for Gavin and met his mum. You're fired, Ed. Still, it's only a game, right? Dear Micromania, I've been playing computer games since I first played Galaxians in Southend back in the late 70s. <laughs> but nothing, and I do mean nothing, prepared me for Bleak Stars. I prefer action games, but this is the first text adventure that I've really enjoyed. Even the images were impressive, though they're hard to look at, like your review said. What I like about the game is its twist. We all know the bleak stars are all that's left of a dead galaxy and their gatherers keep them alive with the suffering of whole worlds. When I realized the big twist, that I was a gatherer all along, my jaw hit the floor. I started cutting myself straight after. I've not been able to stop playing the game since then. More and more, I cut myself deeper 
Once I've sent this letter, I will open myself up properly. I keep dreaming about how my insides will glisten and smell. <laughs> they will watch me do it. I can see the pale white gleam of the bleak stars feeding. I'm fading fast. This is all I was ever meant to do. T-Podge of Streatham. Micromania says, Come on, T-Podge. You know everyone's played the game yet. You'll ruin the surprise. Still, good to see you getting into the spirit of things. You'd make a great horror writer. Though we prefer Gallagher in this office. Even Gavin's mum. <laughs> You're fired, Ed. Dear Micromania, I used to think computer games were a waste of time. When we bought our son his Acorn Electron, we thought he'd use it to do his homework. <laughs> Instead, he spent hours playing games. So me and his mum took it away from him and put it in our bedroom instead. <laughs> You've never seen a tantrum like it. Anyway, I decided to play the latest game our son bought before we confiscated his computer. He never got to play it, but we have. We've played it a lot. Bleak Stars is amazing. I never thought we'd enjoy computer games, but this is more. I can feel my arms getting longer and longer, and my body is beginning to bloat and twist and ooze. My wife lets me drink her blood every night. She bathes me in all her fluids, but soon she'll run out. I'm sure our son won't mind taking over. We've got him locked up in the attic. It's for his own good. These computer games just lead young people astray. <laughs> I can taste him already. E. Thin. Address supplied. Micromania says, It's fab to hear parents are learning to enjoy games. Not sure taking your son's computer away is a good idea, though. It's never good to be too harsh to anyone, least of all your own kids. Tell my mother that, Ed. Good to see you're getting into the spirit of the bleak stars, though. Just don't take it too seriously. Dear Micromania, Before I start, I'd just like to thank you for being the only magazine on the market that covers all the micros which are still supported by the software houses. I still can't bring myself to part with my Dragon 32, Maybe it's time to upgrade to a C64? Mm. For now, I know Micromania will cover my favorite platform, and I'll keep buying. Thanks, Ed. Speaking of dragons, though, I keep dreaming about them ever since playing Bleak Stars. I know they're not in the game, but my dreams add them to the story. It's like they were meant to be there as agents of the Bleak Stars and the Gatherers, but had to be left out for some reason. They're made of bone and sinew and blue fire and spite, and they fly over the country blasting everything with liquid hate. The best part was when they hit my house and me and my family all melted, screaming as the gatherers came to harvest our suffering for the bleak stars. Do you think Wormwood Games will make a sequel? I have so many ideas. I've tried burning myself to see if it's like my dreams. It hurts, but not enough. So I keep dreaming of bile dragons who will bring ruin to all in their path. P. Walson of Slough. Micromania says, Thanks for all the praise, P. Walson. Sorry to hear you want to set fire to yourself, though. Is living in Slough really that bad? In any case, we will continue to be the magazine for all micro-owners. But obviously, only if there's software for us to review. So, well done Wormwood Games for ensuring their Meisterwerk has been released on every platform imaginable. Dear Micromania, My mate Christian is a total prat. Not only does he own a Spectrum, which means he's a massive duh, but he also keeps playing crap games like Bleak Stars, which is really boring, 
and was made by total greebos for weirdos and people who don't like girls. Gary also keeps playing the game all the time and I don't see him anymore, except at school and he's too weird to muck around with now. He keeps saying the world is going to end and these things will come along and eat us or something. I think Drop Zone is a much better game and nicked it from Boots last week. Games should be well-skilled, not boring rubbish. You should only cover C64. All the other formats are for spods and smackheads, like my other mate, Kevin. G-Bend of Reading. Micromania says, Sorry to hear about your mates, G-Bend, but are you sure slagging them off in a letter's a good idea? They might find out if they read Micromania, the UK's fastest-growing games magazine. ABC Data Pending, Ed. Thing is, we cover all platforms, even... <laughs> Even the Amstrad, and they've all got great games regardless, so we can't just focus on one format. Sorry to hear you don't like the Bleak Stars either, but at least Drop Zone's a classic too. And you really shouldn't be shoplifting, you naughty youth. That's how Gavin ended up in Borstal. You're fired, Ed. Dear Micromania, I'm really looking forward to playing Bleak Stars on our BBC Micro, but my older brother won't give me a chance. He keeps playing every day and now looks at me strangely like he's watching me. It's gotten so bad I now block the bedroom door with my bed every night. Mum says it's because he's going through a phase. Dad thinks it's because everything's in decimal and moans about the European Commission all day. My big brother looks very pale and strange and I think Mum and Dad are getting scared of him. Should I play this game or just stick to playing Elite whenever I can get my brother off the computer? Oh, finally, I haven't read anything for a while by Clive, who reviewed Bleak Stars back in August. Is he all right? E-Simple, London. Micromania says, Yeah, sad to say, but big brothers are knobs at the best of times. Maybe you should tell someone if he keeps watching you all the time. As for Elite, it's still a great game. Can we assume you'll make it a most dangerous one day, Commander Simple? Uh, meanwhile, Clive's not been very well, has to be said, but I'm happy to say he appears to be much better and says he is raring to go and set the office ablaze when he comes back from sick leave next month. Dear Micromania, you probably don't get that many women writing in. Meow, Ed. But I need to get something off my chest. Fnar, fnar, Ed. I wanted to get a copy of that game everyone's talking about, the Black Scars or whatever it's called, for my boyfriend's birthday, but all the shops in town had sold out. So I ended up buying a copy from a market stall. Would you believe it? The thing wouldn't load up. It cost me ten quid. He was not impressed, so now he spends more and more of his time around the house of this weird hairy bloke called Jeff who's got his own copy. Sometimes I don't see him for nights on end because he's playing that game. I feel like a widow and we're not even married yet. He keeps telling me there's a big surprise on its way and that he'll show me something amazing soon. But he is acting strange. He is getting thinner, paler. I swear his arms and legs look longer too and he just stares all the time. I don't know what's happened to him. Jeff knocked on our door at 3am yesterday asking where my boyfriend was. He got very angry when I told him it was late. I'm thinking of getting the locks changed. I don't want to throw my boyfriend out, but he's not the man I met. I barely recognize him at all. Seal of Folly of Shirley. Micromania says, Sorry to hear you're having troubles with your bloke. Maybe you need to get some relationship counseling or something. And you really need to be careful if you're not buying games from a high street retailer. Software piracy is a serious issue. Have you checked if you bought a genuine copy? If not, give Fast a call on 01240 6756 and you might get a £1,000 reward. 
Dear Micromania, I got a copy of Bleak Stars for my birthday and I really enjoyed playing it. But then I had nightmares about the things the game made me do and what it turned me into. I don't play the game anymore, but I can't stop thinking about it. At times, I feel like it's calling out to me, but I'm scared about what would happen if I give in. I keep thinking about all the worlds stripped bare by the bleak stars in the game and, and the disgusting ways the gatherers feed and how it could happen here right now. Am I going mad? And all the time I keep hearing this in my head. I am nothing, 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 I am nothing. What if it's true? I want to burn the game or throw it out, but I'm scared it might come back somehow and keep whispering to me. Maybe I should get rid of my computer, but what if the game's already in my head? What if I'm going to turn into one of those things? I just want to sleep. D Sliver, West Ham. Micromania says, You don't sound very well, D Sliver. Maybe it's because you support a rubbish football team? You're promoted, unlike West Ham, Ed. Seriously, though, you really need to talk to someone. Games should be fun. They shouldn't be making you feel uncomfortable. In any case, Wormwood Games does provide a content warning on the packaging, so you really shouldn't know what you were getting yourself into. Dear Micromania, You are sitting at your desk, reading this letter. The office seems very cold all of a sudden, and it is getting dark. The sound of your colleagues is getting fainter and fainter. Soon, they are gone, and you are all that remains. The room is getting smaller and smaller. You sense your body withering as entropy takes hold, and you can feel the cold breath of something behind you. It snares you in its long, cold limbs and entraps you in burning gossamer. Soon it begins to slowly, agonizingly feed on your flesh, soul, and very being, every moment of agony sharpened by the venom it used to paralyze you. What do you do? Press C to cry for mercy, press D to scream in terror, or press X to allow yourself to become as one with the bleak stars. Hungry eyes, nowhere and everywhere. Micromania says, Wow, hungry eyes. Talk about getting caught up in a game. Even Gavin's mum wouldn't take that. You're fired, Ed. Have to say, your writing was really strange, and all the drawings that came with the letter were really weird. We love how you used red ink to look like blood. Still, get some exercise. Talk to some girls. You need it. Just don't chat up Gavin's mum. You're fired, Ed. Next issue. Our big topic next issue will be whether the new 16 bits will change gaming. Does tomorrow belong to the Atari ST or the Amiga? What future for the Tartung Einstein? Plus, is the Amstrad CPC the naffest computer ever? You're fired, Ed. And keep your letters coming in about bleak stars. The crazier, the better. Postscript. There was no next issue. Bleak Stars was withdrawn from sale two months later, and Wormwood Games soon went into liquidation. Its business model was flawed to say the least, and seemed more focused on spreading the game to as many homes as possible rather than making a profit. None of those who worked on the game could be traced, and it's not clear how many of them were even real in the first place. The business address for the firm turned out to be the ruins of an old Georgian townhouse, left to rot after being bombed during the Second World War. 
the game itself no longer exists. Copies began to decay with shocking speed. Meanwhile, attempts to bootleg the game via home taping and memory dump devices proved fruitless. This was put down to poor quality cassettes and duplication processes. But in any case, no working copies of The Bleak Stars remained by the middle of 1988. Until recently, then, the game was thought of as a classic case of lost media. However, word of mouth is now spreading online, alongside rumors of depraved acts and worse that took place during the game's release. Like the original game, then, these narratives have gone viral. Several fake versions of the game have already been posted on online storefronts. Image boards with links to far-right occult groups even feature claims that there are still copies of the original code, and that this will soon be shared on the dark web. A darker rumor is that aspects of the game's imagery and subliminal content have begun to creep into modern platforms in the form of the glitches and bugs that bedevil many AAA games. What is clear is that Bleak Stars has the honor of being the most dangerous game ever made. How much is true or false is up to the reader, of course. But who can deny that sometimes we are the players, but more often, the playthings? And whoever or whatever was behind the Bleak Stars may not yet have finished playing their game. A final note. In the wake of the Micromania office fire, Little was left of its staff, records, or a vast and priceless collection of vintage computer games. What did remain yielded few clues, apart from the autopsy of staff writer Clive Keyes. His few charred remnants showed signs of, in the coroner's words, quote, rampant deformation, end quote, while chemical analyses were quickly placed under a D-notice. But... More ominous was the message he left on the wall of his apartment on the morning of the fire, in a mix of blood and strange mucal deposits. Game over. Beauty in the 21st century is viewed through a lens. A camera takes a photo, and that photo is placed into a magazine, but not before it's been edited and idealized to a level of perfection beyond human capacity. And in this tale, shared with us by author A.J. Harvey, we meet someone working on a photo like this during the most eerie of conspiring circumstances. Performing this tale are Peter Lewis, Wafia White, Atticus Jackson, Mike Delgadio, Graham Rowett, and Mary Murphy. So tweak those imperfections and help someone become something more than human. But be careful you're not left saying, she looked at me.
I clicked the mouse twice to zoom in on her face, focusing on a wayward eyebrow hair missed by the hair and makeup team at the photo shoot. I selected the spot healing brush in the Photoshop toolbar and blended the surrounding pixels to erase the hair, further perfecting the already stunning picture of the actress. A crash of thunder outside my home office window caused me to automatically hit save. I'd be damned if a power outage was going to wipe out the past hour's worth of editing work. I drained the remaining sip of whiskey from the glass sitting next to the keyboard before zooming out on the photo. Elizabeth Dunham was drop-dead gorgeous. She looked beautiful, mysterious, a little sad all at the same time. In the picture, she was draped in deep purple fabric. The cloth spilled over her shoulders, held in place at her chest with her hands. I double-clicked to zoom in tight on her mouth, curled in a whimsical smile. As I dragged the selection tool across her lips to increase the color, I felt a familiar pulse in my groin. Ah, jeez, I need to get out more. I groaned and pushed away from the desk, standing to stretch. I wandered down the hallway, empty glass in hand, into the living room where the TV cast a soft blue haze over a few pieces of mismatched furniture. I left the TV on most of the time, just to have background noise to keep me from feeling too lonely. I'd been working from home for over a year since my now ex-wife left me for what she had jokingly called her work husband. A few months ago, I saw photos from a wedding ceremony while stalking her on Facebook, and I guessed the guy was now her all-the-time husband. I didn't know if they still worked together. (sighs) A brilliant flash of lightning followed by a rumble of thunder brought me back to the living room and the news droning on in the background. I crossed the room to a small but well-stocked liquor cabinet and splashed a refill into my glass. Nicodemus, a morbidly rotund orange tabby, was curled into a ball on the plush recliner next to the cabinet. Nick was the only thing that my ex had left behind. She took everything else, the furniture, all our friends, even the damn ice cube trays out of the freezer. But she left the cat we had adopted just weeks after moving in together. I reached to scratch behind his ear and was rewarded with an annoyed glare. Yeah, he was a crappy roommate, but he had been my only companion after the divorce, and I had grown fond of him. The breaking news jingle cut across the room, and I turned to see a flashing red graphic somersaulting on the screen reading Police Investigation. The camera cut to a pretty blonde anchor woman with the pretense of a solemn expression. We interrupt our broadcast for a breaking news update. Up-and-coming actress Elizabeth Dunham was found dead in her home in what one witness described as a gruesome scene. We go live now to our own KTBG news reporter, Terry Matthews, who was speaking with police regarding this tragic incident. My mouth dropped open as I blinked at the screen. Holy crap. The camera cut to an older man in a suit holding an umbrella in one hand and a microphone in the other. In the background, red and blue lights flashed in the drizzling rain. Yellow police tape fluttered in the wind stretched between two palm trees flanking a front entryway. The door of the house was smashed and crumpled like it had exploded from the inside out. The reporter nodded and raised his microphone. Thank you, Crystal. 
The reporter turned to a grim-looking man in a sweat-soaked button-up shirt and tie. Detective Burke, can you tell us anything about what has happened here tonight? <clears throat> well, it's an ongoing investigation at this point. There's not much that we can release as far as details, but we're working on it, and the department will make an official announcement when we have more details. Is Elizabeth Dunham dead? The detective nodded slowly. Yes, it has been confirmed that the actress was found dead in her home about two hours ago. The reporter almost appeared greedy at that small bit of information. He continued questioning. We've received information regarding Miss Dunham's involvement in some kind of occult activity earlier in the day. Can you tell us anything about that? The detective grimaced. He looked pale. We're following all available leads to make sense of what happened here tonight. And what about reports of strange sounds coming I'm from... I'm sorry, I... I can't share any more details at this point. The detective turned and walked off-screen. The camera focused on the reporter. Well, Crystal, as you can see, it's a disturbing scene here in front of the home of Elizabeth Dunham. I had spoken with neighbors earlier who shared their concerns after witnessing three individuals entering Miss Dunham's home late this afternoon. They appeared to be wearing long black cloaks. Her neighbors thought she was rehearsing for a movie. It turns out there may have been more sinister events taking place. My cell phone buzzed in my back pocket, throwing my heart into my throat. I pulled it out to see an incoming call from my boss, Rob, managing editor of the magazine. I muted the TV before answering. Uh, yeah? Jim, where are you at with the Dunham pick? Almost done. Another hour, probably. Are you still using it for the cover? Have you seen the news? Hell yes, we are. Are you kidding me? I need that pick ASAP, Jim. The article will change, but this is going to drive up sales. Header will read, Gone Too Soon. People will eat that crap up, amigo. Huh. You always were a sweetheart. Okay, I'll have it finished in a bit. Get on it! I need to update the website and our social media within the next hour. I want to use that picture. It's the last professional photo taken of her. She looks smoking hot in it. Yeah, sure thing. I ended the call and turned my attention back to the TV where the pretty blonde anchor was shuffling a stack of papers and looking concerned. Still muted as she moved her mouth silently, the screen flashed again to the reporter at the scene. He was gesturing to the windows of the house, all broken, jagged shards of glass littered the lawn. I shuddered and drained the remaining whiskey in my glass as I walked down the hallway to my office. Elizabeth Dunham's red lips filled the computer screen, still zoomed in from my last few edits. I felt a pang of sadness. I had really liked her as an actress. She had started out as a scream queen in horror movies, and recently had been starring in lead roles in more serious, dramatic movies. She had been cast as the villain more than once, and she always nailed the role. You know, she had this otherworldly, exotic look, and she could instantly give viewers chills with her dark eyes and husky voice. She was known for a few quirky habits on set, mostly meditation and a fondness for candles. Her background was a little mysterious. I remembered a talk show interview from a couple of months ago where she was asked about her childhood experiences. Uh, growing up in a remote village, a commune, really, in rural Oregon. The talk show host mentioned rumors of witchcraft. 
Elizabeth had a sad, almost longing expression and quickly changed the subject to her upcoming movie. Now she was... dead. I sank into my chair and clicked to zoom out for the full photo. Something wasn't right. I studied the image on the screen, trying to pinpoint what was making me feel uneasy. At first, everything seemed perfectly normal, you know, just as I had left it. Her head was tilted back and to the left, showing more of a profile. She was laughing, and her long, jet-black hair fanned out behind her, whipping in the wind. Her skin was soft, creamy white, almost glowing after I had carefully airbrushed her face. Her eyes, her eyes were wrong. She had been looking up and away in more of a a classic old Hollywood pose. But now, no, she was looking at me. I rubbed my eyes and looked again. She was still looking at me. I checked the file name, wondering if I had opened the wrong photo, but it was the same I had been working on before I got up to refill my drink. What the fuck? A sharp crack of lightning immediately chased by booming thunder caused the lights to flicker before a single loud pulse and click rang through the house. Then the lights went out. Elizabeth Dunham's image lingered on the screen before fading into the blackness. Damn it! My voice sounded too loud as I sat stupidly in the dark. A confused yowl from Nicodemus floated down the hallway. I got up and clicked the flashlight on my phone, throwing a single white circle of light onto the floor. Hang on, Nick. I followed the beam of light to the kitchen, where I kept a stash of candles and matches in a drawer near the sink. Lightning flashed again, and I... Ah, banged my knee against the corner of the cabinet. <clears throat> Shit. I swore softly and pulled the drawer out next to the sink. Three candles rolled next to a single box of matches. I set my phone with the light facing up on the countertop and retrieved a candle along with the matches. I set the candle next to my phone and struck a match. As the flame hissed to life, I heard a voice behind me. See me. I whirled around to face an empty kitchen, illuminated faintly by the light of my phone. The match burned to my fingertips and I dropped it. There was a faint echo of laughter across the room. I snatched up my phone and I held it in front of me using the light as a shield. Two green orbs floated a foot above my kitchen table. Oh, cat's eyes. Oh. Nicodemus meowed and jumped off the table, his large body landing with a heavy thump on the dial floor. Oh. I let out the breath I'd been holding and relaxed my shoulders. The rain poured outside the windows, splashing noisily on the ground. The storm, combined with the whiskey and disturbing news, had played with my mind, I reasoned. Another pulse and click sounded, and the lights in the house flickered to life. Down the hall I heard the pleasant chime of my computer. I turned off the flashlight on my phone and jammed it into my back pocket before heading down the hall to my office. Nicodemus twisted around my feet, purring loudly. I'll, I'll feed you in a minute, Nick. <sighs> As I rounded the doorway, I froze. 
The picture had changed. She was still looking at me, but Elizabeth Dunham's face was no longer turned to the left. She had turned completely forward, facing me. I, I stumbled backward into the hallway. My feet landed on Nick's tail and he screamed, jumping over me as I tripped and fell. The door to my office slammed shut in my face. Shit. I backpedaled like a crab into the living room. The news was still on the TV. The screen flashed a picture of Elizabeth Dunham. She was smiling. She was looking at me. I scrambled to stand and I watched with horror as the mute symbol disappeared on its own. The volume bars displayed and the sound resumed. I just want to be seen. Elizabeth Dunham's previously recorded interview played as different images of the actress were posted in a slideshow. She was looking at me in every picture. The interview audio continued. That's why I became an actress. I was so lonely as a child, growing up the way I did. Acting allowed me to be seen, to be heard, and loved. It was a way for me to connect with everyone. I continued walking backwards towards the front door, afraid to look away from the TV screen. I heard the door to my office squeak open. My hand reached behind me to clutch the doorknob. I began to twist it open when the TV froze on a single image of Elizabeth Dunham. It was identical to the one on my computer screen, with Elizabeth facing forward, smiling and staring directly into my eyes. Do you see me? She whispered so close to me I could almost feel hot breath in my ear. I screamed and the TV blinked off. In the black screen I could see my reflection, my body crouching in front of the door. Except my reflection wasn't alone. Someone, some thing was standing next to me, leaning over me. Its body looked long, stretched, too tall, towering above me. I watched its face turn from staring down at my reflection to look at the TV screen, to look at me. Elizabeth's face. She twitched and writhed like a marionette puppet, jagged arms reaching to embrace me. She smiled, red lips pulling wide in a horrible grimace. I bolted towards the kitchen, rushing to the back door. I was almost there when I heard the faintest meow from my office. My heart twisted in my chest. Yes, he was a stupid cat, but he was my stupid cat, damn it, the only thing I had left. I whirled around, terrified, and saw I was alone. No towering ghost was chasing me. The kitchen was empty. The living room beyond it was empty, too. Thunder outside sounded, subdued, more distant. The rain was slowing. I could hear big fat drops pattering on the back porch. I willed my breathing to slow, trying to stop the ragged, shuddering gasps for air. Nick meowed again, and I laughed softly, sounding a little unhinged. I wiped clammy hands over my face. <laughs> oh, I'm losing my damn mind. 
I forced myself to push away from the door and took a few steps to peer down the hallway. No mysterious figures, just my hallway, empty. The door to my office was open. I took a few tentative steps out of the kitchen. My phone pulsed twice in my pocket. Uh, It was a text message from Rob asking, Done yet, buddy? Almost. I sent back and slowly walked to the door of my office. There she was on the screen, still facing forward. She was closer, though, her mouth frozen in a smile that split her face, showing a hideous number of jagged teeth. Her eyes were now black holes set in rotting, dapple-gray skin. In the picture, her arm was raised. She was pointing behind me. I heard the creak of floorboards and felt a whisper on the back of my neck. Look at me. Back in the day, there used to be just a handful of things you could watch on TV. Now look at it. So much choice, so many options, so many different streaming services. There could be anything lurking out there on the airwaves. And in this tale, shared with us by author Mr. Michael Squid, we join two brothers who find something a little unexpected among their available broadcasts. Performing this tale are Kyle Akers, Dan Zapula, Graham Rowett, and Atticus Jackson. So sit back, relax, and watch the box. But remember, this is less Netflix and chill, and more 90s cable and chiller, as we discover the Hidden Television Channel. I've long held a memory that has been the source of pain and anguish through my life since childhood. My psychiatrist is convinced my memories are warped in an attempt to suppress trauma, and I began to believe him. I've been on anti-anxiety medication for nearly 22 years and anti-depression meds for 18. I'd eventually been convinced that those memories were, in fact, a result of suppression. I was finally starting to move past it all. And then this afternoon, I saw it. I saw the hidden television channel I'd been convinced was a false memory. And I screamed. My brother went missing when I was nine years old. And his friend was found dead in our living room. I was questioned, as was my father, but the nature of Dan's death defied explanation. And the lack of evidence made the case unsolvable, so it went cold. I was considered an unreliable witness after my tearful testimony to the police. In the following months, I was taken to a child psychologist and eventually prescribed medications before undergoing years of repressed memory therapy. I was there when it happened, though. And as of today, I am now certain what I saw 
was in fact real. My parents raised Ryan and me in the suburbs of Hatfield, Pennsylvania. We had a yard, a good education, good friends, and the latest 16-bit video game consoles. I was happy at age nine, enjoying the summer vacation as the sweltering heat of June baked the streets. My older brother Ryan was 14 and a bit of a smartass, always cracking jokes and getting into trouble. Still, he looked after me and was always quick to stick up for me if any bullies made the mistake of giving me a hard time. I truly was lucky in retrospect. One weekend when dad was working and mom had driven off to run errands, I was playing Genesis in my room when Ryan began yelling from downstairs. Hey Mike, get down here, check this out. I heard the din of scattered applause from the TV in the living room. I shuffled out of my room and peered down at Ryan who flashed me his trademark smile, marked by the mole on his cheek. It had been a sore spot growing up and led him to growing thick skin after being called Marilyn Monroe many times in elementary school. I looked past my grinning brother to the TV to an image that warped and shifted like a scrambled adult station, bending the image. Yeah, Dad locks the porn channel, perv. I shook my head, but then the image on the TV fixed itself. On screen, there was a panel of shifting people whose faces looked somehow wrong. They all had normal features, eyes, noses, and mouths, but they looked strangely shaped and sized like each was in the wrong place, or perhaps the wrong shape. They looked deformed and almost fake, and it was pretty creepy. What the heck is it? Just come down here. Check this out. Ryan dropped to sit cross-legged in front of the glowing screen. I was curious and had nothing better to do. I shuffled my small feet down carpeted stairs and stood next to Ryan watching the strange people on the screen. This is not a real station. Look! His finger pointed at the corner of the screen. The station read 23.3, a station in between stations. And then he pointed to the dial. Our TV was one of the old-fashioned dial sets. The knob was resting between stops. And this show is fucking weird. I then sat next to my brother as the image went in and out of scrambled distortion, and we watched a TV show unlike anything I'd ever seen before. Seven individuals with strange-looking faces all conversed in whispers between themselves. A shiny-faced, bald man who appeared to be the show's host paced back and forth in front of a large, reflective black panel on the wall. The image bent and shifted as the scrambled effect came in and out but I soon realized it was a large square of black glass, maybe 12 feet square, and likely fairly thick as well. After some deliberation, the seated individuals on the panel held up large cards with numbers from left to right. 3, 21, 53, 501, 413, 8, 42. I had no idea what those numbers could possibly mean, but I began to feel nervous watching. The people with pinched and strange features creeped me out more than anything. It was like they had all received severely botched plastic surgeries, warping them so far out of normal proportion. They all looked terrifying. What is this? Shh, I don't know. Stop talking. The camera switched to show a close-up of the standing man, the presumed host. My skin crawled immediately once his close-up filled the screen. fuck was right. The man was bald, 
and the close-up revealed the skin on his grisly face was made up almost entirely of scar tissue. Shiny, pink skin was pulled tight around the contours of his skull. It was reminiscent of a burn victim who's had his damaged skin grafted, but in a way that didn't make any logical sense. His teeth were pristine, sparkling white, but his lips were jagged, blended at the seam that was uneven, as if they'd been split and patched together by unskilled surgeons. It was like some horrifically butchered cosmetic surgery had been performed on him for the sole purpose of making him look more disturbing. The host peered into the camera with small black eyes, beneath folded creases of misshapen lids. Little obsidian beads that stared into me from the flickering screen. My neck hairs raised as he cocked his head slightly, as if he'd become aware of something. I held my breath, and then he excitedly pointed at the camera and spoke. 2913! My brother and I looked at each other in shock. Our address was 2913, on our lane. It was surely a creepy coincidence, but I was nine years old and absolutely terrified at that point. Turn it off! Ryan just gawked, his jaw hanging open as he watched the television. The host pointed with a twisted finger to the audience and a slew of about 20 individuals whose backs were to the camera. The person who'd been pointed at then stood and turned to the side to move down the aisle. It was a woman who looked sickly and tired. She was gaunt, emaciated with bags under her eyes above sunken cheeks. Her age was a mystery, as her face had been mangled in a similar fashion to the rest. There was no way to tell if she was 25 or 85. She dragged one foot behind her as the host kept pointing a gnarled finger at her. As she shuffled out of the aisle and onto the path to the stage, it was clear her left foot was dangling at the base, connected only by skin itself. Jesus Christ. Ryan exhaled in a hushed voice. The woman limped up the stairs to the black-floored stage and made her way to the panel, taking a seat at the end of the strange-looking individuals. A wide-angled shot showed a black-clad assistant rush over from behind a curtained stage left and hand her a placard reading 2913 in thick black numbers. These did not look like special effects, and they were far too graphic for television as far as I knew. Turn it off! Ryan was still. He seemed mesmerized by the bizarre television show. The camera then showed a close-up of the woman holding the sign, and my heart pounded in my chest. It wasn't a woman, it was a mutilated girl. Much younger, but cosmetically butchered just like the rest. Her face was scarred in lines under the eyes and cheeks, making her appear older. She looked very familiar, however. It took me a while to figure out where I recognized that nose speckled with that particular pattern of freckles. I made the connection as my stomach sank to the floor. It was Amber Darton, the girl who'd been all over the news after having gone missing, presumed abducted from her yard last year. I'd seen her face so many times in the papers, on the post office wall, and even on milk cartons, there was no mistaking it. It was impossible to ignore. Her face had been terribly altered in what appeared to be an attempt to conceal her identity. I couldn't stand it anymore. Ryan, that's Amber Tartan, that girl who's gone missing. Ryan, call the police. Fuck, fuck, you're right. Holy shit. Ryan stood up, stumbled back, and raced to the cordless kitchen phone. He picked it up and dialed, but just seconds later, the image on screen warped back into wavy bands of a scrambled station just before clicking to channel 23. 
where a baseball game was being aired. No! I approached the old TV set, hitting the side to try to restore the image. I fiddled with the knob, trying to balance it between the stations, but it wouldn't stick or find that hidden station, no matter how slowly I rotated the dial. That strange show didn't come back. Not when my mother returned home and listened to our pleas to believe us. Not when a uniformed police officer arrived at our door, which made our mother really lose it. Once she explained the hyperactive imaginations of her boys, forcing us to apologize to the man. Nobody believed us. Ryan and I were both determined to find the station throughout the week, but had no luck. The station clicked very clearly between the actual stations, and the phenomenon Ryan had discovered seemed to be a one-time fluke. Might have been pirate broadcasters. Back in 87, hackers did it in Chicago with a Max Headroom mask. I, I don't know. He sounded like he was desperately trying to get over it and dismiss it as a prank or as a fluke. I don't think he wanted to face the possibility that what he saw was real. Days passed, and honestly I thought that was the end of it. God, I wish it had been. A few weeks later, Ryan's friend Dan from school came over, and they watched horror movies late at night after mom and dad were asleep. I sneak-watched the thing from atop the stairs without them knowing. After it was finished, they began chatting about strange, real-life horror stories and unexplained phenomena. And then, Ryan brought up the show. There's a hidden television station, swear to God. My little brother and I both saw it. Ryan explained this despite the scoffs of Dan, a larger kid who always wore leather jackets and fancied himself the long-lost member of the Misfits. When Ryan was done, Dan smirked and then shook his head. Bullshit. If the station existed, hundreds or even thousands of people would have seen it. I swear it was real, man. Ryan walked up to the TV and began fiddling with the station knob. We'd done this a dozen times since the incident, and of course there was never any signal again. (laughs) Dan was chuckling as he drew out a Marlboro from a pack in his jacket pocket and headed to the door to go out for a smoke. But then it happened. There was a pop of static. A crackle as the image flickered, and then wavy bands of color streaked up and down the screen. Dan stopped mid-step, the unlit cigarette dangling from his lip. Holy shit, this is it! I felt my guts squirm at the sight of it. It was something dangerous. Something too dark to explore. Ryan and his tough guy friend Dan were the type to chase thrills, though. I watched from the top of the stairs as those sickening faces appeared once again on the screen. The panel of disfigured individuals and that shiny-skinned host with beady eyes and perfect teeth beneath the ravaged flesh of his face. What the actual fuck? This is fucking crazy! I watched for a few seconds as the panel of individuals raised placards with numbers. 814-2-601-21-B-3-F-210-2002. The host faced the screen once more in a grotesque close-up. I twinged with a shiver at seeing that terrible, butchered face staring intently into the camera, squinting malformed lids over shiny black eyes. 2913! 2913! Quick! The host pointed a gnarled finger to an emaciated male in the audience, who staggered slowly up and onto the stage to hold a newly painted placard reading 2913. Our address again. My throat closed and my heart pounded in my chest. The host then walked to the large, 
black glass square inset into the stage. I felt sick to my stomach but couldn't look away. The black square pane of glass began to brighten as if a light was being turned on from the other side. The illumination revealed a room of a house and two people facing the camera. My heart skipped a beat as I realized what I was seeing. Behind the glass was a reflection of our living room, as viewed from the other side. Standing in it, facing the audience, was my brother Ryan and his friend Dan. What the fuck, man? Dan took a step back from the screen. His actions were mirrored in the large square panel, as if it were a window into our home. There was a harsh, distorted tone that rumbled through the television low and deep. It sounded for a second, stopped for two, then sounded again on repeat. My fear had built to the point that I couldn't take it. Turn it off! Only then did I alert my brother and his friend to my presence at the top of the stairs. That analog, deep rumbling tone kept sounding, and my brother ran to the TV, fidgeting with the dial. The image remained as he switched stations. It remained even after he pressed the power button. This can't be real. Ryan yanked out the plug of the television, and the screen finally went black with a crackle. But then the tone sounded again, distorted and deep, rumbling loud enough to tremble the upstairs floor beneath the carpet. There was a sharp bang, followed by the cracking of wood. Ryan screamed a shrill scream, facing the out-of-view front door of our home. I ran into my room and slammed my door shut, locking it with shaking fingers. There was a horrible series of snaps and crunches, followed by the most horrible, shrill scream I'd ever heard. Everything after was a blur. I remember my parents' voices, confused by the sounds that awoke them. My mother's scream, frantic yelling, my parents checking if I was okay, sirens, police, ambulances. Everyone was asking if I knew where Ryan was. I did not. Dan was found splayed on the carpet. His wrists, ankles, and neck had been severed clean through. Though the skin remained unscathed, it was as if they'd been severed from within his body. His official cause of death was listed as internal hemorrhaging, though how he got his injuries was a complete mystery. And that was the end of it. I grew up into a scarred adult with some issues due to the trauma. I have an Ativan with breakfast and a Paxil at lunch. I've been to therapy sessions through my teenage years and into my adult life. I was convinced there must have been some crazy trick, or perhaps my mind had envisioned what it feared the most on the screen. Ryan was presumed kidnapped and killed. We even had a funeral for him seven years after the incident, once he was legally declared dead in absentia. I hadn't seen or heard from him in 30 years. Not until this afternoon. Today I was scouring the news and forcing down a TV dinner. I was flicking the stations, not paying attention to the channel, only to what was on. News, cooking, cartoons, and then... My blood froze. I stared at the image I'd struggled all my life to convince myself was a delusion. A vivid hallucination or some transfigured, repressed memory. The station read 23.3, and the familiar nightmarish television set appeared once again. It was that same studio stage, and a row of disfigured people 
who appeared to have had horrific plastic surgeries. They were all new, butchered faces, but the exact same setup. The host was a bald, heavily scarred man, but clearly a different person. I watched the familiar routine of raising signs of street addresses when the close-up cam fixed on the mutilated visage of the host. The host gurgled frantically, his crooked finger aiming at the screen before lowering to single out a woman in the audience. My heart stumbled in my chest until it hurt. My throat dried and my eyes widened in dread. I felt the icy claw of horror traced on my spine. I lived in apartment 21B on my street, but it wasn't the address that sent me screaming out my apartment door, down the stairs and into the streets. It was the butchered face of the host. It was the unmistakable mole on his mutilated cheek. are pretty awesome. There's so much out there, from the MCU to the world of indie horror. And there are some people, shockingly, who focus more on movies than podcasts. Cinephiles, they sometimes call themselves. And in this tale, shared with us by author T. Michael Argent, we meet someone who very much used to consider themselves one until they watched a movie that changed everything. Performing this tale are Sarah Thomas, Dan Zapula, Mike Delgadio, Mary Murphy, David Alt, Peter Lewis, and Nicole Doolin. So grab the popcorn, make sure you get an extra large soda, and settle in for a night at the movies. Back in college, I thought of myself as a cinephile. If you're not familiar with that term, it basically means I thought I was better than everybody else because I didn't watch mainstream movies. The walls of my room were plastered with posters for so-called highbrow films, like Pulp Fiction, Rashomon, and The Godfather. I bought Criterion Collection DVDs. Whatever the conversation was at hand, no matter how off-topic it was, I tried to steer the focus towards film, or rather, my opinions on them. Back then, I at least had enough sense to know that I couldn't make a career out of watching movies, but I still tried to minor in film studies anyway. Thank God I went with accounting for my major. I wrote dozens of essays on the French New Wave, threw around terms like mise-en-scene and diegesis daily in class, Considered Tarantino and Kurosawa my idols. Got angry when my fellow classmates looked at their phones during the screenings and didn't pay attention to the art that was going on in front of them. Looking back on it now, I cringe. Hard. It took me an embarrassingly long time, almost halfway through my junior year, to realize just how pretentious and sad the whole thing was. 
Did I honestly think that just because I watched classic cinema every weekend that I was better than everyone else? Was I actually paying $25,000 a year to sound like a dull wannabe critic? It was too late to change my minor by the time I realized it. I was more than halfway through completing it and stopping now would make all the money I had thrown at the classes pointless. I continued, but begrudgingly. The friends I made during this time period became so, not because we especially liked each other, more that we liked the same kinds of movies. We'd all go together as a group over to one of our dorm's lounges and watch anything a tour, from Chunking Express to Vertigo to Dr. Strangelove. There was no talking aloud during the actual screening, just after the movie was over and the questions had been asked. We'd discuss the film for hours, although these were less discussions and more of echo chambers where we could throw around terms without rhyme or reason and feel important for doing so. I don't even remember most of these guys' names, mainly because they didn't seem to have any personality outside a list of their favorite films. The only one that I remained friends with after my epiphany struck was a guy named Travis. He happened to be minoring in the field as well and sat next to me in class. Travis certainly still had a small streak of pretension in him. He'd never admit to thinking a certain popular film was good, even if he thought so. But he cringed along with me when our peers tried desperately to be the next Ebert by pointing out microscopic details even the professor didn't know or care about. He was also not afraid to admit to liking so-called mainstream fare, like Happy Gilmore and Clue. By and large, Travis was the only person I would hang around with outside of class. Consequently, it was him I was partnered up with for that mid-semester project junior year. I don't remember exactly what this class was for. Honestly, most of them were so similar that they all blend together. But I do remember the teacher, a thin, balding man named Dr. Anderson. His voice rang out over the room as we sat down. Now, class, as I'm sure all of you know, we're approaching Halloween, which means we're nearing the halfway point. Travis leaned over. (laughs) I could have told you that. Well, in order to prepare you for your final in December, I would like to offer an optional assignment for those students that may be struggling. Our university lies outside one of the richest cities in America for art and culture. As can be expected, the underground film scene is a booming business. Now, taking into consideration the unit we just completed, I felt it wise to move this optional assignment outside the classroom. So if you attend a screening of an independent film before Thanksgiving, show me your ticket stub, write a two-page essay summarizing and analyzing whatever it is you saw, and I will add 25 points to your final exam. Half the class answered with cheers, the other half with groans. Travis was part of the latter category. Man, I knew skipping half that week was a bad idea. Now I'll have to do this just to make up those lost points. I thought back to the time the previous month I had missed a few days because of particularly bad menstrual cramps. Hey, if you want to find a movie, I'll go with you to see it. I need those points just as much as you do. Oh, hey, that'd be great. It won't be too hard to find one. Um, Maybe we could do it this weekend just to get it out of the way. 
After an hour of Dr. Anderson talking about nothing, Travis and I left together to go get lunch. While we ate bowls of tomato soup, he scrolled through the local event calendars on his phone, looking for one that caught his eye. Nearly an hour ticked by. We had already shot down a few for being too long, too boring, too weird, or a combination of the three. I was about to suggest that maybe we pick another weekend when Travis spoke excitedly, turning the phone around so I could see the screen. Hey, this one sounds neat. He had apparently found the poster on a little-used local calendar site that looked like it hadn't been updated since 1996. A single image of the poster stood against a bright blue background with clip art lightning bolt animations flashing alongside. Above a picture of a man putting his fingertips to his temples with closed eyes were these words. Out of my mind. The exciting, unique new film of director Avery Atkinson. Come see drama, hope, love, and loss unfold in front of your eyes with a unique viewing experience. One night only. Friday, November 6th. Below the picture of the man was the address of the theater. I don't know, man. That theater's not in a very good part of town. Plus, there's no information on what it's about or who the actors are or anything. Travis looked back at the poster. Do you really care? I thought about it for a moment. I guessed I didn't. Look, we wouldn't be doing this if we didn't have to, right? I figure let's just pick the one that sounds the least painful and get it over with. Hell, even if it turns out to be shit, we can just leave and make something up. I had to admit, he had a point. I had come to find that not even the most die-hard film fans went to local productions on a regular basis. Fine, but you're buying the sodas. Fair's fair. That Friday, we made our way there. The theater was a small venue, almost exceedingly so. It was wedged between a 24-hour pizza place and a used bookstore. The marquee labeled it the Paradiso. The building looked old and in need of some construction. As we stepped up, a tired-looking older woman with graying brown hair looked at us. Here to see out of my mind, huh? You two are only the fifth and sixth people here. Man, that doesn't mean the movie's terrible, is it? The seller shrugged. I don't know. It's not my job to decide what's shown and what's not. I just run the place and make sure it doesn't cave in on itself. We bought our tickets. At $4 a piece, it seemed almost suspiciously cheap, and made our way inside. The small lobby had a single counter with an ancient popcorn machine and a bar fridge full of bottled soda. There were a few benches, some dead-looking plants, two curtains that led into the only screen, and that was it. Four other people, a couple and a single man and woman, milled about. Ten minutes passed. Travis and I chatted while the others seemed to just stare off into space. The door that led to the ticket booth opened and the seller stepped out heading behind the counter. Could I interest anyone in some concessions? We didn't trust the popcorn, so Travis and I bought Pepsis. While she rang us up, Travis asked her a question. Hey, do you know anything about this movie? Like what it's about or how long it is? The seller shrugged again. It's like I said earlier, I don't decide what gets shown here. 
I haven't seen this flick, but I was here when the director came by to show the owners. Weird dude. He took him up to the projection boots to show them his masterpiece, as he called it. And that was that. I had to leave early, but when I came back the next morning, there was a note saying that I should let him screen it. I sipped my soda. So, that's it? I would have thought it was more difficult to get your movies shown. (laughs) Me too, honey. Me too. With that, we walked through the curtains, followed after by our four fellow moviegoers. The seats were small and cramped, but not uncomfortable. We took a pair in the middle. The screen was pulled down over the stage, a large white rectangle. Travis turned to me. He lifted his bottle. Here's to hoping this isn't a waste of a Friday night. Suddenly, without warning, a man walked out from the wings. He was dressed in a large jacket, a wide-brimmed hat, sunglasses, and a scarf pulled nearly up to his nose. His wingtip shoes clacked against the stage as he made his way towards the chairs. Someone needs a mirror. The man stopped and clasped his hands together, surveying his audience of six. After a brief pause, he spoke, outstretching his arms. Welcome, my friends, to a viewing experience like none you have ever seen before. I am Avery Atkinson, your boatman on this journey of the mind. Some films scare you, some make you sad, some make you laugh. But not the one you are about to see. No, this film will do more than make you feel more than that. In fact, I'm certain it will be the most emotionally challenging piece of cinema you will ever see in your life. I rolled my eyes. Some people could be so full of themselves. He brought his hands down and clasped them again. I understand why some of you might be (laughs) skeptical. After all, I don't know you and you don't know me. I'm just as uncertain as to how you're going to react to my film as you are to my creative process. Let's just say that after your viewing experience is over, we will understand each other better. Much better. The overhead light shone down on his sunglasses, giving them an almost blinding sheen. This film is nearly ten years in the making. It's an ever-changing process of editing and rearranging. Using your input tonight, I hope to get one step closer to making the perfect movie. Then, and only then, can I be content. I thank you for your presence here tonight, and please... Enjoy the show. He walked off the stage and up the aisle, disappearing behind the curtain that led into the lobby. The lights began to dim, but nothing lit up the screen. This is going to be a shit show. From somewhere in the lobby, I heard a sharp gasp, followed by glass shattering, then quiet footsteps as someone ascended the stairs to the projection booth. I wondered if the woman at the concession stand had dropped a soda bottle. A few more seconds passed. I was just beginning to wonder if they hadn't even started the projector yet, when a blinding shock of light suddenly appeared on the screen. From the booth above 
came the familiar, static-filled clicking of an antique projector turning its rolls of film. What first appeared on the screen wasn't a title card, or credits, or even a definable scene of any kind. There wasn't any music, either. Instead, it was just a slowly spinning black-and-white spiral, twirling lazily in the center of the frame. At first, I was nonplussed, unsure of what to make of it, before I looked closer. The design was very intricate. In between each swirl was some kind of geometric image, endless in its loops and curves and fascinating in its construction. I continued to stare at it, even as it shrunk in size and moved to the lower right-hand corner of the screen. Then, as if a switch had been flipped, an image appeared. I wasn't prepared for it and almost jumped as the white space was suddenly filled. It looked like a surreal, off-kilter approximation of a sitting room. The ceiling had several large holes in it. A crooked fireplace with crumbling bricks and broken tiles was half in and half out of the wall. Couches and benches lined the space. Some normal sofas, some weird amalgamations of different designs from different periods, and some covered in bits of broken glass and nails. There was a door on the far end of the room, closed, covered in a random assortment of numbers written in a shaky hand. The floor was ripped up in some places and splintered in others. Bits of fabric from what I assumed to be the remnants of a rug clung to some of the pointed ends. There was a cat gem in front of one of the couches. My eyes would sometimes flit from the surreal room in front of me to that spinning spiral in the corner. It was hypnotic, almost, how often I was drawn to it. Even as a knock came at the numbered door, the first sound that the movie had produced, it took me a moment to draw my eyes away and up towards the center of the shot. I'll get it. A thick, slurred voice echoed from somewhere off screen. Appearing from the right came a man dressed in a suit. He ambled his way across the floor towards the numbered door. He walked with the limp dragging his right foot like it was dead weight. The foot was missing a shoe, and it scraped and scratched against the torn-up floorboards, occasionally drawing blood. But he didn't seem to notice. He grasped his hand on the knob and put all his weight against it, nearly pushing too hard and falling to the floor, before managing to pull it open all the way. The woman that stood in the doorway was a strange sight. She appeared to be dressed as a 50s housewife, with a long white dress dotted with stylized cherries. Her blonde hair flowed down to her shoulders in a soft wave, and her lips and nails were painted bright red. If it wasn't for the thread that wove through the upper corners of her mouth and through the piercings in her ears, giving her a large smile, she would have looked rather pretty. Despite this obvious impediment, A voice issued from the dark space between her pearly white teeth. Her lips did not move. If it wasn't for the inflections and breaths, I would have thought it was a recording playing somewhere off screen. Hello. It is so nice to see you. It has been a while. 
I am doing just fine. Thank you for asking. The man in the suit asked no such question. Do come in. It is dark outside. Darkness hides many things. The woman shuffled forward, her red heels clacking against the wood. The man finally turned to face the camera. His expression didn't match the normal tone of his voice. It was a mask of sorrow and pain, tears leaking from the corners of his eyes, coupled with a hideous grimace. Every step he took looked like it caused him great discomfort. Despite his obvious distress, he kept his hands calmly at his sides and made his way towards the corner couch. If it wasn't for his dragging foot, his movements were calm and normal. He sat down on the right side, barely missing a piece of broken glass jutting out from between the cushions. The woman, instead of sitting on one of the available accommodations, picked a spot in the middle of the room and began to lower herself down. I thought she was going to fall to the floor, but instead she stopped, leaning back and crossing her legs, as if in an invisible chair. The man spoke first. How long has it been? I noticed with some revulsion that the movement of his lips did not match what he was saying. Though he said, I haven't seen them in years, he was very obviously trying to say something else. It looked like someone was dubbing his voice. The woman's mouth continued to not move. I miss them sometimes, but after a while, you just have to get used to it. After all, it does not do to dwell on things you cannot change. The man leaned to the side, slicing his arm against the jagged glass. Trickles of blood ran from between the rip and the sleeve. How is, uh... She was just ten the last time I saw her in... That's where our house was. It was her idea to come to this place downtown, right across the street from... She had to go because I lost track of time and she needed to see her mother. I stayed for the rest and, uh, and... The woman reached her hand out, as if to pat the man's shoulder. But her arm lengthened, spanning across the room and growing grotesquely thin to lay a hand on his knee. It is not your fault. Something similar happened to me. A night on the town. Just me and... It was supposed to be romantic. We had dinner at... And then to the place. We saw someone we knew there. Her name was... He went to get more drinks and that is the last thing I remember. The woman began to say something else, but suddenly, a sharp, metallic whine filled the room. I looked over from the spiral I had been staring at for the past few minutes to see the end of a drill coming from the wall, sticking out and spinning like someone on the other side was hanging something. The drill stopped and retracted. No matter, the cat is here. I watched, dumbstruck, as a black Viscous fluid began dripping from the newly drilled hole. It ran down the wall in small rivers, 
staining the plaster in its wake. It undulated and bubbled as it slid, almost alive in its movements. Muted sounds could be heard coming from the mass, but I couldn't quite make them out. The woman turned and looked as the fluid ran over the bench covered in nails, picking up a few and absorbing them in its wake. Oh, how nice. It dripped from the stool and onto the floor before coming to a halt in the center of the floor. All at once, it began piling on itself, growing larger and taking on a definitive shape. I knew what it was before it fully formed. Seconds later, it stood. It looked like someone had given a three-year-old that had never seen a cat before a mound of black goop and asked them to make a sculpture. Its head was crooked and its body misshapen, the front legs shorter than the back ones. It blinked one green eye and one white one before making a sound I can only describe as a cross between a cat yowling and a scream. That was the breaking point for me. I leaned over to Travis and took a hold of his sleeve. Listen, man, let's just go. This shit is crazy. I don't know what this Atkinson guy is on, but I don't want to see any more of it. When he didn't answer, I looked up. He was staring transfixed at the screen, his eyes glassy and mouth slightly open. The Pepsi bottle he was holding had tipped, sending most of it spilling to the floor. He answered in a distant voice. Why? It's groundbreaking. It's unique. It's amazing. I shook my head. Well, keep watching if you want. I'm just going to go hang out in the lobby until it's over. I couldn't leave Travis there. He was my ride. When he didn't answer, I groaned and stood up walking down the aisle and through the curtains while the woman laughed hollowly on the screen. (laughs) To my confusion, the lobby appeared to be empty. The cellar was nowhere to be seen. Maybe she went into the back office, I thought. I looked at the carpet in front of the popcorn machine and saw a broken soda bottle lying there. Why would she just leave the mess there like that? The clicking of the old-school projector seemed louder than it did in the theater. I looked at the door behind the counter and saw that it was ajar. Dim light came from inside, illuminating the wooden staircase that led up to the projection booth. To this day, I don't know why I did it. I looked to make sure no one was coming before walking behind the counter and pulling it open. The clicking increased in volume as I stared up at the dark booth. Someone was standing in front of the glass, their back to me. Where was the projector? I climbed the stairs slowly, stepping lightly so not to make them creak. As the room came into view, and when I reached the top, I saw that the person was Atkinson. His large hat, scarf, and sunglasses lay in a heap on the floor. I stepped silently to the side and stared at him. Whatever it was he had been hiding under the head coverings didn't look remotely human. The neck that rose from the body was an ashen gray color, thin like a bird's. The head was slightly square-shaped, 
protruding in the back and drooping down slightly in the front. The eyes had no pupils or irises of any kind, just endless white, taking up half the face like he was some kind of insect. Beams of light shot out of them, growing in size until they took up the screen in the theater and projected the film. The mouth was small and pinched, almost an afterthought, placed at the very bottom of the visage. The tongue that came out of it was black and studded with square designs, white rectangles on the side. It was rotating, rolling out of the mouth and looping back to enter at the bottom of the chin, making some kind of circuit. The clicking noise was emitting from deep in the throat. I didn't even have time to react to what I had just seen before a sudden crash erupted from the theater. I turned to look, watching as on screen, a hole appeared in the room's ceiling. Someone fell through it, landing roughly on the floor and impaling a shard of wood through their leg. It was the ticket seller. She screamed in pain as she reached down to touch the wound, which was spreading blood quickly across the floor. The woman looked down at her. We are so happy to see you. It has been a very long time since we have gotten anyone new. The seller screamed and sat up, releasing the shard of wood from her leg. The man was getting up from the couch and making his way towards her. Although his face continued to look pained, and he appeared to be screaming now, his voice was calm as ever. Right this way, we will get you ready. The spiral in the corner suddenly went into overdrive, spinning so fast it became a gray blur. The seller's mouth was moving as if she was attempting to say something, but no sound came out. The woman and the man each grabbed one of her arms and began dragging her across the room. The half-formed cat thing followed, making those strange noises it had made earlier. That broke me. I turned around and bolted down the stairs, not caring how much noise I made. The clicking continued behind me. I ran through the lobby and in between the curtains, down the aisle and to the spot where Travis sat. The others in the audience had the same glazed, wonder-filled expressions on their faces as he did. I shook his shoulder. Travis, Travis, we need to get out of here. The dude up in the booth, he's... he's not right... We need to go. Travis mumbled something that I couldn't hear. I looked up to see the spiral had filled the shot again. It grew larger, taking up the rest of the screen, then reaching up to the edges, then growing past the edges to the walls of the theater. Noises suddenly began to blare from the speakers, two hollow sets of laughter and someone screaming. The spiral continued to grow, pulsing forward like a shockwave. I grabbed Travis's arm and tried to pull him out of his seat, but he was dead weight. He wouldn't move a muscle. I looked at his face. His eyes had rolled back in his head. As the spiral grew closer, I saw his skin begin to bubble like old celluloid burning. The others in the audience were dissolving, melting and dripping to the floor. The gray frenzy was only a few feet away, 
I gave one last tug on his sleeve before falling into the aisle. I looked up at the booth to see the thing that called itself Atkinson, staring directly at me with now dark eyes, the clicking noise still emitting from his throat. I jumped to my feet and fled through the curtains, throwing one last look back at Travis as his form lost shape, sizzling and falling to the floor. Just as I ran through the front doors, I heard footsteps walking down the stairs of the booth. I spent most of the next few days locked up in my dorm room, not even leaving for class. There was a lot of confusion and sadness, not only caused by Travis's disappearance, but also the sheer insanity of the whole affair. I thought for sure that the police would come, asking me for the whereabouts of my missing friend. But no one ever knocked on my door, and I never heard anything about what had happened in the theater. When I was finally able to drag myself to class later in the week, I found that Travis's name was missing from the sign-in sheet, and his chair had been removed from our table. I asked Dr. Anderson if there had been some kind of mistake. He frowned. There's no one in this class by that name. That pretty much drove me to the breaking point. I checked the contact list in my phone. Travis's name and number were missing. I googled him, looking for his social media. Nothing. It was as if he had dropped off the face of the earth. And in a way, I guess he had. I never finished my minor in film studies. I couldn't look at a projection screen without hearing that clicking noise playing in the back of my mind. I spent most of senior year in a daze, finishing my labs and term papers, before walking with a 3.4 GPA. For years, I tried to forget that night. I avoided movie theaters like the plague. Even the thought of sitting down to watch one at home made me sick. I was usually okay with TV, but nothing more substantial than your average sitcom. In a way, I never really left the theater. My nights are filled with glowing squares in the dark and that clicking noise from somewhere off in the shadows, accompanied by laughter. Jobs are hard to keep down, and relationships are hard to maintain. Lately, it's been different. Sometimes I'll find myself walking down the city streets late at night, my eyes wandering from dark window to dark window, letting the headlights from passing cars wash over me. I go wherever my feet take me, block after block, mile after mile. I usually don't stop until I see the sunrise cresting the tops of the buildings. I don't know where I'm going or who I'm looking for. Maybe one day, I'll turn down a corner and see a dilapidated set of buildings, crumbling brick and rotting wood and broken glass. But in the center of all that decay will be a bright red marquee, lights flashing, announcing a new film. And the doors will be open, and the lobby is full of the sound of popping corn and disembodied laughter coming from behind those two curtains and a clicking noise will be emanating from that door behind the counter. And I'll think, and I'll wonder, and I'll decide, it's time to go to the movies. 
In our final tale, we join a man working on an archaeological dig who finds a strange machine. It could be anything. The possibilities are endless. But one thing he didn't consider was that it would be a gateway to love. But in this tale, shared with us by author Joe Prossett, we're reminded that love can be cruel and painful, especially when it's discovered under such strange circumstances. Performing this tale are Jesse Cornett, Nicole Goodnight, and Atticus Jackson. So brace yourself for a love story that spans decades and the horror story lurking just beneath it when we hear a voice exhumed. I never would have guessed such an old, ugly contraption would have held so much beauty. Two work students lugged the machine draped in an old cloth into my trailer and sat it on my desk. That's fine right there, boys. They nodded and left, as if they would have listened if I'd given them more specific instructions. Good help is hard to find. Harder when you don't pay them. As much as I tried to leverage my status as a tenured professor at a state university, it didn't go far outside of the classroom. I told them thanks as they left. Thanks, boys. Flippantly letting the door slam behind them. Approaching the hooded mass resting on my desk, I grabbed the tail of the oily drop cloth and yanked. The machine looked like some steampunk fantasy complete with levers and gears, knobs and tubes that seemed all too unnecessary and elaborate to be functional. The years and water hadn't helped. The brass was tarnished, almost black. The wood was dried gray like driftwood. Three initials carved into the base, PLM were almost erased by the years of rot and erosion. I doubted if any of the mechanics still worked, whatever they were meant to do to begin with. My chair creaked when I sat down in front of my desk. The trailer, a temporary office parked halfway down the old Arco mine pit, was quiet. We'd managed to drain the pit down 200 feet deep, with another 200 feet of water until we hit the bottom of the pit, where the mine tunnels began branching out into narrower veins. There was a ledge here at the 200-foot mark. The original mining company had used this shelf for a base camp. Now the university's archaeology crew and I were using it for the same purpose. My trailer was one of three portable offices. There were storage containers, floodlight generators, pumps that rumbled 24-7, and a scattering of other equipment and residue. Some of the work-study kids stayed in tents not far from the edge. At all hours of the day, there was a general bustle about the camp. But in here, tonight, in my trailer, things were quiet. I studied the machine in silence, uninterrupted. Here, I could put my mind to work. Such an old device, 
what could it have been used for? Short and pudgy, I was never a man respected for my physical aspects. I was a man of mind. Damn what others thought of me for it. My voided wedding ring sat on the desk next to the machine. It served more as a worry doll these days than an emblem of marriage. I pushed up my heavy glasses in the sleeves of my soiled chambray shirt. The strange design of the machine drew me in, and I leaned closer to examine it. There was a cracked leather bulb like the rubber primer on a lawnmower, so I pumped it a few times. There was an old switch that looked like the kind that set a model train into motion, so I threw it. The machine clanked. Something deep inside the brass and wood case spun softly. My God, something inside was working. The life of this thing thrilled me. Who would have guessed anything about this almost hundred-year-old relic would still function? My palms became wet. My heart thumped irregularly in my chest. A pump the same proportions as the water pump working to drain the gigantic mine pit. One big lever on the side seemed like it should be the last control to be activated, so I pulled it down. Not without some effort. It locked into place. The spinning inside the machine stopped. Shit. I nearly tipped over backward. If the chair hadn't been on wheels, I would have gone ass over tea kettle for sure. It spoke again. Only it wasn't fair to call it it. It was a woman. A voice of a woman, anyway. Soft and maybe just a little scared. Can you hear me? I miss you. And if my heart was running in high gear before, now it was ready to throw a rod. The thumping in my ears drowned out the muffled drone of the generators outside. My voice, on the other hand, was dry and muted, all sand and dust. I couldn't speak back. And what the hell would I have said if I could? What the hell was this machine? A voice recorder? I could only guess, but this thing looked more like a chemistry set than its phonograph or telephone contemporaries. How was it speaking? Where were the recordings stored? Where did the sound waves emit from? It sighed. No, she sighed sounding very much human and forlorn. I thought I'd hurt you. Guess I was wrong. I should try not to be so hysterical. I love you. Goodbye. The machine clanked and chortled. Something released the lever on the side and it sprang back up. Had it heard me? Was the woman truly waiting for my response? Was it still listening to me now? 
Hel- Hello? Only the constant drone of the generators and pumps outside replied. Then my colleague, Professor Stephen Pennington, burst into the trailer like a tornado. He carried a dozen map sheets and folded newspapers under his wings and a spilling cup of coffee in his hand. Darren, I found some of the old records I was looking for. I'd love your take on this stuff. Really compelling stories, man. But check it out. He dropped all the documents on my desk, next to the machine, burying my worry doll wedding ring. When he ran into the room, he shoved the machine over to make more space. Hey, 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 hey! Steve, being Steve, seemed not to hear. So, here's what we already know. The Arco mine flooded on August 6th, 1925, drowning 42 souls in lake water, rubble, and ore. That was well documented in newspapers and oral history. We have the names of the 42, and they were even able to recover 28 of the 42 bodies. The mine owner, a Mr. Chester Crosby, deemed the vein already mined out and not worth pumping dry again. Crosby and his investors picked up and moved to another iron ore vein 30 miles to the east of here. Without Crosby and his money and his mining company, the town was left to mourn the tragedy as it sunk into poverty and dried up. The contents and the remaining 34 bodies still buried in the mine were forgotten to history. Okay, that's all known history. Right, but here's what we didn't know. It seems after Crosby left town, his guilty conscience, or team of lawyers, caught up with him. Look at this. Steve pulled out a small slip of paper, yellowed, thin, and brittle like an onion peel. This is an invoice from Crosby to one of the widows, Miss Anne Nordahl, for $500. A good chunk of money in those days. Here's another one to Miss Clarence Darrow, another widow. And another invoice for another $500 to Miss Margaret Svedberg, a mother to one of the workers. He paid out to every one of the 42 families who lost someone in that mine, except one. There's 41 invoices, and the bank even has a withdrawal on that day for a total of $20,500. I did the math quick in my head. 41 families at $500 a pop. I sifted through the old newspaper clippings, invoices, and ledgers scattered on my desk. So, so who's the miner who didn't get paid? Wasn't a miner. It was his daughter, Phoebe Louise Milford. Her obit says the body was recovered from the mine and buried up by the Crosby's home in Duluth. Look at the picture of her here. She was a beauty, huh? I got a work-study student looking for her tombstone now. My heart had downshifted back to idle since Steve's invasion, but now was revving back into second gear. Third gear. His daughter? Well, that, that doesn't make any sense. Why would he let his daughter hang around in an iron mine? A terrific question with a terrific answer. Turns out, She was married to one of Crosby's dynamite technicians. This real weirdo from St. Paul. 
Charles Joe Milford. Studied at the university, same as us, and thought of himself as something of an inventor. He died in the mine, too. Do you know what that means? I shook my head, more focused on my heart than on Steve's rambling. That means we got a love story on our hands. We got a narrative. And with any luck, we'll find some of this Milford guy's tinkerings and we'll have artifacts. You know how much museums pay for this kind of thing? Well, not much, but they pay a hell of a lot more for a love story than they do for old pickaxes and carbide lanterns. We might get some real grant money for this. And with any luck, maybe even be able to fund this project through to its completion. <laughs> My hands were still shuffling through the old papers, but were stilled when they brought the old photograph to the top of the heap. She was pretty. Her face was smoothed by youth and the soft vignette of the photograph, the color of rust and the sharpness of dust. Her hair was short and in tight curls, like one of those Art Deco women in a Fitzgerald novel. She wore pearls. She looked off camera. Something about her eyes told me that she wasn't really seeing anything like what she was looking for was a million miles away or more likely 200 feet underground but how did she die why would she be in the mine you got me but you want to know what I think I don't think she was in the mine I think she was right here Steve pointed at the trailer's floor. I had no words. What the hell was he talking about? Think about it. We're using this shelf as a base camp. Why wouldn't they? I bet she had a nice little cottage right here, well above the high water mark, so she could be that much closer to her lover boy. When they set that fateful charge of dynamite below Lake Huntington... Most likely it was old Charlie himself. The mine flooded out in less than 15 minutes. My guess is that she was sleeping right up to the point her little cottage filled with lake water. I looked down at her photograph. That's terrible. No. That's a tragic love story that's going to keep us rolling in grant money. What's this? The smile finally dropped from his face. The machine next to and under all of his papers finally caught his eye. It's... Actually, I have no idea. He cleared away his papers around the machine. Does it work? What the hell is it supposed to be? I honestly don't know. Hey, be careful with it. Steve jabbed his finger at the initials carved into the machine's wooden base. Look. P-L-M. Phoebe... What was her middle name? Yep. Phoebe Louise Milford. Oh, man. This is great. I'm willing to bet my right nut that old Milford built this for. You gotta figure out what this thing was supposed to do. 
Okay, okay. I'm I'm working on it. Just I need some time. Do you need help? I got an engineering major out here who's just sorting chunks of iron ore and petrified stool samples into piles. He might be able to... Uh, hold on. Steve pulled a buzzing cell phone from his pocket. This is the girl I sent to Duluth looking for that tombstone. Hello? Did you find it? I watched as my colleague repeated his words, Hello? swore, Hello? held his phone up for better reception, and left my trailer as eager and distracted as a freshman student. With a screech and a bam of the door, Steve was swallowed by the endless drone of the generators and pumps. I turned back to my desk. Steve would probably be gone for hours, distracted by the next odd bit of newspaper that caught his attention. Steve was a child, but he was also right. If we didn't find a way to tell the story of the Arco mining disaster in a way that grabbed people's attention... The money would dry up, and the mine would be abandoned for a second time. But the machine, it sat there still half-covered in papers, still and silent. But it did speak to me. Not just spoke like a phonograph, but like a telephone. Only it had no wax drum or record, no wires or ear, or mouthpiece. Charles Joe Crosby could have given his wife a phone and strung wire down into the depths of the mine. But instead, he built this thing. It functioned more like a radio. But there was nothing that resembled a dial, a diode, or an antenna that could be capable of transmitting through 200 feet of rock and iron. What I was imagining was impossible. I checked over my shoulder to the door. No sign of Steve and his babblings. I turned back to the machine. How did I work it before? What had Steve messed up by monkeying with it? I cleared away the papers. Some of the tarnish had been rubbed away. The brass underneath seemed eager to return to a shine. I went to working on the controls. The bulb. Then the switch. The whirling started back up. No, oh, thank God that moron hadn't damaged it. The lever was next. It whined like an old door as I pulled it down and locked it in place. The machine went silent. Hello? I immediately felt stupid for saying anything. I got up from my chair, shuffled across to the trailer door, and slid the locking chain into the groove. At the sound of the chain sliding against metal, all the hairs stood up on my arms. I was certain the machine had made a noise precisely when the chain rattled. I turned around. The span of the trailer seemed awfully distant, 
The machine sat amongst the old invoices and obits like a hibernating grizzly bear. Hello? I hear you. I knew it was Phoebe. Could pin her fragile voice to the face in the black and white photograph. It wasn't the machine that spoke. It was her. A ghost caught in time. Is that you, baby? You sound so far away. I was sweating more than usual. What the hell was I supposed to say? What could I possibly have to say to a dead woman? I lied. Yes. Yes, it's it's me. I'm I'm here. Oh, well, that's good. How are things down there? Are you finding lots of gold and silver or just that cruddy old iron? <laughs> I laughed. She sounded so disarming, so comfortable talking to me. I crept across the trailer, closer to the machine and the voice. No silver or gold. Lots of iron ore, though. Oh, I suppose that will make Daddy happy. How about you, my love? Are you happy down there in the dark? I eased back into my chair, trying to keep it from squeaking. I was just a few feet from my desk now. I'm, uh... I I'm okay. It's dark. This wasn't a lie. It was dark outside, and not much brighter inside the trailer. But it's good to hear your voice. Also, not a lie. She terrified me, but also fascinated me. And her voice had a soothing quality I hadn't heard from another human in years. I immediately understood Milford's motivation to build this contraption. Come back up. I want you here with me. I, I don't think I can do that, dear. The next time she spoke... Some of the innocence was gone from her tone. You sound different from when we spoke yesterday. But you say the same thing. You don't need to be down there. You don't need the money. I've told you we'll have more money than we'll ever need. You say that you love and miss me, but if that's so, why don't you come back up to me? If only I could. If only I could come to you and look you in the eyes. I wheeled my chair up to the machine and lifted the picture of the woman off my desk. Tomorrow? That voice. How could I tell her no? What a... What is the date tomorrow? You've been down there too long. I think you'll turn into a mole soon. Tomorrow is Thursday, the 6th. August 6th. 
my eyes locked on the dates listed on the obituary. Born May 19, 1906. Died August 6, 1925. Charles? My love? What's the matter? I... I have to go. I... I can't talk. My hands were clumsy with nerves. I fumbled with the machine's controls, tugged at the large lever, but it wouldn't budge. I tried the switch, but it flipped back and forth with no effect. Phoebe kept talking. Charlie, is something wrong? I'm... I'm... I'm sorry. There was another switch under the primer bag, and I tried that. The big lever on the side released and sprung up into its original position. The machine transmitted no static or noise aside from the woman's voice. But somehow I knew as soon as the lever returned to its upward position that the call was over. The soft spinning in the case was back, but only for a short time. It ran down, and in seconds everything was quiet except the diesel engine drabble coming from outside the trailer. What the hell was I doing? The machine haunted me through the rest of the night. I struggled to ignore it and keep it out of my vision. I used Steve's newspapers to bury the machine as deep as the woman in Duluth and the man she was still attempting to reach 200 feet below. I tried to sleep on the old couch in the trailer, but sleep wouldn't come. When I closed my eyes, I saw her face. When the machines outside the trailer harmonized into a white noise, I could hear her voice. I came close to sleep, I think, and my conscious thoughts grew more confused and fatigued. When the machine clanked and clamored back to life, I was sure it was a dream. Baby, I know you're down there. Why don't you speak? I sat up wearing just a pair of old gym shorts, my round belly hanging over the waistband. I felt embarrassed and intimidated by the voice. I was as unkempt and uncouth as the voice was poised and elegant. She was a classic beauty. I was a modern slob. Still, she wouldn't be ignored. here will even acknowledge I exist. They're all afraid of Danny, but not you. You're different than anyone I've ever met. You're brave. So be brave now and talk to me. The silence broke me. Okay. Okay, I'll talk. I just don't know what to say to you. Oh, it's silly. Just hearing your voice is enough. 
but I don't understand what will happen. I don't know the rules, the cause and effect. I don't think I should interfere with what's going to happen to him. I don't know if I should or if I can even change what happens. What are you talking about? Nothing is going to happen to me. Baby, you're talking nonsense. Just tell me about your day. How about that? I panicked to come up with something. Something that maybe wasn't a lie. I was talking to a colleague. We were talking about your family's place in Duluth. Is it... Is it nice there? Charles, you've been there. The play acting was coming easier now. The lies felt invited by her. Demanded, even. I know, I know. But but how do you like it? Would you be happy there? You know I love it there. The view of Lake Superior is spectacular. I could watch the ships pass through the canal and under the lift bridge all day. It's cold and windy and wet, I, I know, but I don't care. There's something I love about how sullen it is when the chill comes off the lake. But we can live anywhere you want to take me. Do you like these machines? They're amazing. When we're all finished up here, you must take me to the patent office in St. Paul. You'll be famous for certain. Could you do me a favor? Maybe. Do you want me to tell you what I dream about when I dream of us together? No, no, no. I, I just need something simple. Oh, okay. Do you have something sharp? Something that will dig into wood? Well, I guess I did give myself a rather good poke with the needle on my bridge the other day. What in heavens do you want me to do with that? I paused and readied myself for what might come. I want you to take your brush and scrape some marks into the front of the machine, maybe just to the right of your initials. Scrape it? But honey, the finish is brand new. It, it, it's so beautiful. Just, I'm sure it is beautiful. But I need you to do this. To make the machine work properly. She paused. I leaned in close, my face just a foot away from the wooden base of the machine. The trailer was cool, but sweat trickled down my brow, and I had to wipe my eyes clear. Well, I never understood how any of this works, so... If you insist. I waited. Slowly, awkwardly, small grooves appeared next to the more elegantly carved PLM initials. When they first appeared, the freshly exposed wood looked young again. An instant later, a near century of dry rot caught up and the wood turned from honey yellow to bone gray. 
I did it. Can you hear me any better now? There was no change to her voice, aside from sounding just slightly more innocent and vulnerable. But it helped me make up my mind. A little better, yeah. Okay, my dear. I need you to do one more thing. Anything. Go to Duluth. Leave tonight. Tomorrow will be too late. Pack a few things and wait for me there where you watch the ships come in. I know the place. I'll meet you there in just a while. Can you do that for me? Tell me you love me. What? Say that you love me. You haven't told me lately and you haven't acted like it lately, spending all your time down there in the mines and now this? Say it. Say that you love me. My shoulders slouched. I... Phoebe, it's just... I love you. I love you more. Now, no more talk of me leaving you for Duluth. You and I are in this together. And that was it. Her fate was sealed. My hands were numb with nerves. My heart broken with loss. I... I guess. What time is it there? Up there, I mean. Same time as down there, Mella. It's late. Will you stay with me until I fall asleep? I miss hearing you breathe as I drift off. That sounds wonderful. There was something too reassuring about her voice. It penetrated through the culpability of our situation. I was vaguely aware of the rarity and tragedy of spending my night with this woman on the last night she'd be alive. Of how much this was worth. And I couldn't convince myself to break the fantasy apart with reality. What if I fall asleep before you? I was tired, and there was nothing more I could do. My head rested on the desk amongst the obituaries, the articles, the machine, and the sound of her relaxed breathing. I wheezed, but was sure that something about the machine translated my amnestic breaths into something reassuring and masculine on the far side. Hers were like a melody. It wasn't long before I was asleep. I woke up with a start, confused between dreams and reality again. When I lifted up my head, I squinted at the pre-dawn glow seeping through the blinds into the trailer. I'd slept through the night. Today was the day of the flood. 
the day the woman died. I panicked. Miss Milford, Phoebe, my darling, are you there? The machine was dead. It sat there as still as a 90-year-old artifact should. I swiped the papers clear from its face and saw the PLM and the fresh but ancient scrapes next to those letters. There was still time. I could impact the past. I could save her. Maybe save all of them. Phoebe, my love, talk to me. The large lever was back in the up position. The machine had run dry during the night. I just needed to prime it and reset the controls. The leather bulb. I squeezed it with my sweaty hands and something inside gurgled. Shouldn't it be stirring by now? No. First, the switch. I flipped it. The machine churned into a smooth whirl. Whatever internal mechanisms hid inside of it still functioned. I held my breath. Hopefully, she'd still be there. Hopefully, she'd still be alive in her time. Last was the lever. With a groan and a clank, I locked it down. Phoebe, are you there? Am I allowed to set you? It wasn't too late. I need to know something. What time is it there? I rifled through the various articles and newspapers Steve had left there until I found the information I was looking for. My wedding band, now signifying nothing but broken promises, rolled to the floor. I ignored it. My eyes fixed on the piece of data I needed. 7.15 a.m. That was when the flood began. Immediately after the first blast of the day that opened an underground tunnel between the mine and Lake Huntington next to it, I checked my watch. 6.25. I had time. Don't worry, I didn't forget to wind my watch. It's a quarter after seven in the morning. No, no. It should be just before 6.30. Why? Daylight savings time. It hadn't been enforced in her time, only in mine. The flood had already begun. Baby, what's the matter? Would it really matter if I told her? Could I really affect the past? If I did, what would become of her? The machine? The dig? What if I just let her believe that I was her beloved all the way up to her death? It wouldn't be long now. Another five minutes, and the floodwaters would fill the entire mine, her cottage included. Five minutes wasn't too much time to keep up a lie. Phoebe, say that you love me. You know I do, my darling. I love you until the end of time. The words were so sweet. I could have listened to her repeat them until the end, and I was tempted to do just that. But I'd lost my love before. 
Maybe I wouldn't have to again. Listen to me carefully. I'm not who you think I am. I'm not your husband. talking about? Who are you? Where did you come from? Listen, there was an accident this morning in the mine. At 7.15, the miners blew into Lake Huntington. The mine will flood to the very top by 7.30. That's five minutes from now. You can escape, but you have to go now. Go. Go to Duluth and never think of this place again. Who are you? Why are you saying such things? Why have you lied to me? I scrambled to try to make her understand, but none of that mattered now. I I can explain. I, I'm sorry. You sounded so beautiful. I didn't think you were real. I'm a professor from the future. An archaeologist studying the site of your death. This machine, it spoke to me. You spoke to me. I see the marks you made in the machine. We can change things. You can get out. I can save you. Where's my husband? What happened to my husband? Strange how, when I committed to the truth, it flowed like a torrent. He's he's still down there. Even to this day, his body was never recovered after the disaster. Are you telling me? Oh, God. Oh, God. I heard echoes of her voice coming from far away and deep down inside the mine. I closed my eyes. It wasn't hard to imagine her stepping outside of her cottage on the ledge and looking down into the abyss below, quickly filling with cold lake water. I heard her scream his name. Charles? Charlie? God damn you, no! I imagined there was debris, flotsam and jetsam, rising up with the floodwaters from its underground source. Like bodies, too. Phoebe was there, standing on the edge of the shelf, watching death swallow everything in her life, and racing to swallow her, too. I'm I'm just climbing. There were noises coming from the other side of the machine. The bang of a door. Footsteps. Panting. Then her voice, sounding more jagged and hateful than I ever imagined it could be. I don't know who you are, sir. I'm going down there with my husband. I wish I could take you with me. This deep, it's sure to be a short trip to hell. When I come back, I'll be sure to retrieve your deceitful, pathetic soul. And that was it. The machine clunked and the big lever sprang back into its upward position. Something inside spun for a few seconds and then died. No. Phoebe. 
don't go down there. Climb, come back up and live. I tried the machine, the bulb, the switch. It spun and readied itself for transmission. The lever. I wrenched it down and called out her name. Phoebe? She didn't respond. Phoebe? She was gone. No. I don't know how much time passed as I listened to the dead end of a ghost call. I couldn't pull myself away until the ring of my cell phone jolted me out of the haze. I sat up to find myself still at my desk, crying into my arms like an overgrown man-child, wetting the record Steve had brought me. It took two rings before I could compose myself enough to pick up the phone and see who was calling. It was Steve. I tried to clear my thoughts and steady myself to sound professional. I didn't get a chance to say hello. Steve started right in. Darren, you won't believe it, man. After my work study called, I had to come out here and see it for myself. I'm sorry about leaving you like that. I really wanted to take a closer look at that artifact you found. But listen, I gotta ask you something. And be honest. Okay. Did you tell anybody, I mean anybody, about Phoebe Louise Milford? Particularly about her grave up here in Duluth? What? No. Who would I tell? I don't know. Doesn't matter. Here's the deal. Someone exhumed her. What? What do you mean? Yeah, bud. Somebody dug her up. I mean, we haven't dug down to look in the casket yet, but the gravesite has definitely been tampered with. I mean, from all indications, someone dug up her bones, or at least dug down to the casket itself. We're waiting for a court order before we can dig further, but... Wow! How wild is this, huh? I mean, whether we find her bones down here or not, I'm sure we're going to come across some really interesting stuff. From an archaeological point of view, you need to be here, man. Once we get that court order, well, we're not waiting for you. Get your ass to Duluth. Then Steve hung up and left me in silence yet again. But I, I need to get dressed. Baby, can you hear me? Before I could get up, I heard her voice again. My eyes locked onto the machine. Are you listening? I froze in place, my heart thumping louder than all the generators and pumps outside. Yes, I hear you. Are you alive? She spoke again, and this time I realized her voice was richer and more stereophonic than before. It was like she was right behind me. I came back for you. 
I turned my chair, squealing as I rotated towards the door of the trailer. Phoebe Louise Milford stood there in my filthy little cramped trailer. She was slim and draped in a satin white dress stretching from her small chest to her ankles. Whatever shoes she'd been buried in were gone. Her bare feet touched the floor. Her pearls were soiled and broken, dangling around her neck. Her tightly curled hair was rotting and falling out. Her once porcelain smooth skin was now papyrus, stretched over bone. Her exposed teeth were half missing and yellowed like an old stain. She stretched out one hand as if I'd take it and let her lead me away. Her voice was still as rich and melodic as when I first heard her through the machine. I came back for you since you wanted to be so close. I'm here to bring you underneath with the rest of us. And God help me. I stretched my hand out to hers. the letters back in their envelopes. It's time to take our leave for now. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and being a supportive Season Pass member and for being ever curious. This audio production is copyright 2021 by Creative Reason Media, Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.